Good morning, Solano. My name is Jim, and I'm here to read the scripture passage for our message today. We are continuing in the book of Zechariah. If you want to read along, and there's an English Bible in the chair in front of you. It's on page 749. We start in chapter 9, verse 14, subtitled, The Lord Will Save His People. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This is the word of God. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm the associate pastor. We're going to jump back into Zechariah. Um, and that's after a great Easter week and just still feeling the glow of that. And of course, what a great morning it is to commend and commission Pastor Miguel. Just want to say that's a great win for Solano as well. That um, uh, you guys have raised up an amazing man like Miguel to love the Lord and to be a shepherd of God's people. And uh, so we're, I'm excited to be a part of that jump in. But yeah, it just struck me nine years of serving here from a part-time, whatever he was, worship leader, part-time worship leader, to, to pastor. And that's just a testimony to the Holy Spirit at work. And uh, yeah, just Miguel continuing to stay faithful. So exciting times. Um, and you know, speaking of exciting times, uh, this passage in Zechariah is meant to provide a picture of an exciting future. And just for review, you know, um, on Palm Sunday, we met uh, King Jesus as the humble king mounted on a donkey. I don't know if you guys remember that. Uh, he was a righteous king. Um, he was humble. He was bringing salvation. And uh, he was going to speak peace to the nations. Uh, but if we read the text closely, and I think it's verse 10, we see that the story of his coming, of this king, is condensed. Right, because it says that he comes and speaks peace to the nation and he rules from sea to sea. And so it kind of jumps really quick to Jesus' coming and there's this utopic rule of the world. And so what we know is that that didn't all happen right away. Jesus, there was a first part. There was act one and then there will be act two. And depending on your eschatology, possibly act three. Um, but we know there's, there's two comings of Christ. We all agree on that. And so what that means is that um, when he, he came and he brought a spiritual salvation, but there was actually going to be a period of time until we reach the fullness of that salvation. It was spiritual and it will become a full, physical, all-encompassing reality at his second coming. What that means is that salvation is actually a journey. It is actually a journey and a destination, which means it's a destiny, 
a journey and a destination, which means we are still on our way towards the completion of that journey. We have a, um, what C.S. Lewis called a final country, the true country that we were meant for, right? And so C.S. Lewis, he writes about this idea. He's trying to argue for the Christian faith, why we should believe it. And one of his arguments is to, is to actually um, use our own longings to point to the reality of this, um, this future heaven, this future paradise with God. Because he says, look, if we have something called hunger, it's because there's food. If we have something called sexual desire, it's because there's sex. And he says, if we have this longing, this desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then maybe it's because there is another world that we were ultimately meant for. And so he concludes, um, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. And so salvation is ultimately a unique destiny. The purpose of Jesus' cross, his death for us, and his resurrection was actually so that we can begin that journey. It's the starting point, and now we are traveling towards our, our future and final destination with great hope, and that is our, our salvation. It is a unique destiny. And so the real battle for us, as C.S. Lewis points out, is to not get sidetracked along the way. To not let the pains and longings and temptations of this world cause us to lose our hope in God's salvation that is already, but not yet. It is not yet. And that's kind of what this text is going to be about. And so we're going to see that he sets this up in verse 12, where the, the, the prophet says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And so we see this imagery of God's people waiting for God's promises. That's the stronghold that they're to return to. They're to remain within the walls of God's promises. Um, and today, he says, I will restore to you double. And so this is a picture of what God's people are like. They are in the stronghold of his promises. That is where they are at home, and uh, that is where they remain. And that means that they live for today based on the promises of what God is going to restore in the future. There is a future restoration. Um, and so we want to follow the contours of this text to help us understand what does it mean to live for this future restoration, this future destiny? What are the features of that destiny that we need to be about as we, as we wait in our stronghold? And so I believe it is something we need to embrace. It is something we need to be encouraged by. And um, this destiny is something we need to hold out for. So as he promises to restore to Israel double, and there's this promise of this future restoration, he begins to unpack how that restoration will come about. Verse 13, for 
I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So the first thing that God says to his people when he promises to restore to them and have this future destiny for them is he says, I'm going to make you as weapons in my hands against uh, Greece, which I think is a, a term that meant like the Gentiles, basically the rest of the world. And, um, and so this is curious language. This is curious language because we just learned that king, the king, this humble king, Jesus, was going to speak peace to the nations. And in fact, he was going to remove the chariots from Israel. He was going to remove the battle bow from chariots. He was going to remove the battle, the, the, um, the weapons of war from them. And so here, God is saying, but you will be a weapon in my hand. And what are we, so what are we to make of this? I believe that God is saying, look, Israel, I'm going to remove the standard weapons of war from you. You will not use and rely on the world's ways ever again when my king comes. You will put away the sword, but that does not mean you will not be engaged in a struggle. You will be engaged in a struggle. And so let's listen to how Jesus unpacks what this struggle is. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, right, we have this picture of this king coming to Zion. Well, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he gave a speech. He gave a speech about how it was all going to end, and this is what he said. Verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Many Christians will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus explains, my coming into Jerusalem as the king is part one, but there is this big mission in between there, and it is to bring the name of Jesus to the nations. But the nations will hate God's people because of that message. And so this is the destiny that we have to embrace. God's people must embrace a destiny of struggle with the world because um, they will resist this message. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to go out and we want the world to hate us, um, and, but it's saying that as we are move the mission forward, ultimately, it will be resisted. Big picture, the nations will hate the church, as it says there. And so, um, what does that mean for us? How do we embrace this destiny of struggle with the world? I want to really hone in on this imagery of God's people as arrows and swords in God's hands. Um, arrows and swords, what makes them effective is they have sharp edges. And so if we're going to be arrows and swords in God's hands to bring the gospel to the nation, we as God's people, we must maintain our message. In other words, we must not lose 
our biblical distinctiveness. We want to avoid being hated. I think that's good. We should not want to do it. We should not try to do it. We should have a reputation of loving deeds, of patience and compassion. We have not always done a good job of that. Um, but at the end of the day, that is, there's going to be hatred towards God's people. We can, we can do all those things, but at the end of the day, um, our message will be resisted because what we are ultimately doing is we are calling people to repent and believe in Jesus, right? The whole point of celebrating Easter is that God has placed and risen his king and he is in the heavens and he will come again. And so everyone now is called to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and now live for the king. If he is resurrected, that is God's king. It is his kingdom. We must live for it because he is coming back to claim his kingdom. And now the message is come and believe. But that means you have to turn from the very ways of your life that led him to that cross. The very things that he died for, he must turn from those things. Those are against God's kingdom. And you must believe in him. And so the, the world will ultimately hate that message. And so we, but we must maintain it. And so that's going to be a battle for us. We don't want people to hate us, especially here in the East Bay. There are things about the Christian message that um, our community does not like. And we are going to be tempted to want to make it as easy for them to believe and accept as possible. We're going to be tempted to want them to like us despite what we believe. And so the question for us is, are we going to um, reinterpret biblical teachings? Are we going to avoid certain parts of the Bible? Are we going to hide them? Or are we going to receive them and believe in them and teach them? I was encouraged recently by a book I read called Confronting Christianity. It's a book by Rebe Rebecca McLaughlin. If you listen to it in Audible, you hear her wonderful English accent as she reads it. She wrote about the hard teachings confronting Christianity, the hard topics that cause people not to want to believe. There are 12 chapters. 12, cha 12 topics, we're talking homosexuality. What about slavery in the Bible? What about the teaching on hell? Is Jesus really the only way? What about science? She tackles it all, and she brings us to the person and work of Christ. So I was, I was, here was this woman taking the hardest topics, and instead of trying to reinterpret scripture, she she turns these arguments on their head and says, this is why the gospel is glorious. We should not disbelieve because of these things. We must continue to believe. So I, I recommend that book, but that's the kind of edge we need. We need to maintain our message even when we are confronted with the world's disapproval of our message. And so we must embrace our destiny of struggle with the world because we are the ones bringing the message of salvation to the world, and that message will be resisted. It will be a great trial on the church. 
We will feel it collectively. We will feel it individually. You will feel it in your community, your neighborhood, your friends, your social circles. And we will feel it together corporately. So I believe we have to remember this imagery. We are swords and arrows in God's hand, which means let's maintain the, that, that mean, I mean, what is, what, you know, Paul says that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So let's not blunt that. Let's not, let's not be mean, let's not be judgmental, let's be loving, but let's not blunt the message. But I can imagine as Israel hears about their struggle with the whole world, all of Greece, and maybe as Christians, as we face the idea of being hated, that can sound crushing. God is going to speak to that sense of intimidation of what his people might feel. So verse 14, he says, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and war as if, as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. So we have this great appearing of God um, to protect God's people. So this is what is referred to as a theophany. Theophany is a physical appearance of God. So I want to interpret this as Christ's second coming. So we, we met the humble king, but here he comes not so humble. He comes as lightning. He comes as an army marching forward. He comes as the worst tempest and storm you can imagine. That's what it means to be the uh, storms, the whirlwinds of the south. The, the, the sandstorms of Arabia were renowned in the world as some of the worst storms you could imagine. Um, and God is picturing himself like that when he comes. And so Jesus says, uh, when he was talking about this, he said, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So this is Jesus coming. Um, and so this imagery just conveys a few things. Um, it, it, you know, it has the idea that God's people, um, as they are stirred up against the world, it, it appears that things are going to go bad for them. They're going to be hated. They're going to be surrounded. And so God will come in this dramatic way to protect his people. God will intervene. In other words, things are going to get pretty bad for the church. Things are going to get pretty bad for God's people. And God is going to swoop in at the 11th hour, so to speak. And Jesus talked about that. In fact, he said it this way, very dramatically. He said, For then there will be great tribulation such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it appears history is moving in a way that will make it harder and harder and harder for the church to where it will be the worst and almost unimaginable that uh, the worst days ever will come in the tribulation. And so that's kind of the imagery there. God's coming to protect his people. And then, but then there is a decisive victory. God's people are impervious to the sling stones. They tread them down. Made me think of like Superman with bullets just bouncing off of him. The attacks of the enemy have no effect on God's people. In fact, the victory is so decisive, it pictures God's people as drunk with victory. And so 
part of what Christians, we need to, yes, we need to embrace a destiny of struggle, but we also need to be encouraged by our destiny as victors of Christ's second coming. And so how does that help us? How does that help us think about Christ's second coming and the victory that is coming? Well, one way it helps us is it helps us stay faithful with that struggle I just talked about. Because it keeps us from being disillusioned. And this is maybe a little counterintuitive, but the idea of that final battle is that God is going to have to protect his people. God is going to have to save them, meaning, like I said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so that keeps us from being disillusioned. The reality is, as we continue to represent God's kingdom, both in word and deed, we will have some success. But if we look at the aggregate of our impact, it will feel like we're losing. It will feel like we're not making progress. And the Bible says that's exactly what I I predicted would happen. So part of God's coming is to is to be the one that truly changes and rescues the world. The church will only have such an impact. We must continue to strive for that impact, but we can get disillusioned if we believe that we're going to be the ones to rescue the whole world and make the whole world um, uh, believe in Jesus and be righteous. We're not. In fact, as we do and and struggle for that, um, we're going to be met with so much resistance that God is going to have to come in and rescue the church and bring his kingdom himself. So let us not get disillusioned. And so we have to maintain our motivation is my idea. We have to maintain our motivation. And the other way I think this helps me and can help us maintain our motivation um, is the idea when I think about that we're arrows and swords in God's hands. Yes, that means we need to be stay sharp, but that means that God's aim is true. That means that God is using us. That means that God has you exactly where he wants you in that struggle. And he is using you to make exactly the kind of impact he wants to make. You are the arrow and sword in his hand. Not for violence, not for judgment and condemnation, but to bring people the truth of the kingdom in love and in truth. God is using you to to do that um, and so, you know, my son, Ben, he asks a lot of deep questions, and you will often hear about him in my sermons because of that, but, you know, he often will ask me and Jamie, why doesn't God just take away sin? Why doesn't he just, he, he struggle, he's burdened by sin. He doesn't like that he struggles to believe. Why doesn't God just make this all uh, perfect? And I told him, well, If God were to take away sin, he'd have to take away sinners. He'd have to get rid of all the sinners. And God's not ready to do that. He still wants to save people. So, of course, Ben took that negatively and got scared. That means God's going to have to, like, wipe out people and, and be, you know, destroying people. He didn't like that vision. But I was trying to say, no, buddy, the point is God wants to save as many people as possible. And so I, I read to him Second uh, Peter 3. I'll read this to you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And again, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. And so God is saying, yes, the world will oppose your message, but I am still using you to bring people to repentance. 
I have not brought the end because there's still people that I want in my kingdom when I come. There are still people who I want to experience eternal life. And that is why I have come. That is why I have died. That is why I have risen so that people can look to the cross, look to me, experience forgiveness, be in my kingdom and have eternity with me. And God is going to hold out as long as possible before he does that. And he's saying, in the meantime, I am using you. Do not lose your motivation for what I've called you to, to be those arrows, to be that sword in my hand. I appreciate, for example, just, just to give an example, the AND campaign. This is a group of Christians that have come together to speak to politics from a Christian worldview. You want to talk about an uphill battle. But I love their approach. Listen to their, I got this from their web, website. This is how they're approaching it. Urban Christians have a unique and powerful sociopolitical perspective that is not fully represented by either of the two predominant political ideologies. It is a gospel-centered worldview that is committed to redemptive justice and value-based policy. And so what he's trying to do, what the AND campaign is trying to do is instead of threatening and wielding power based on a Christian majority, they are trying to speak to power based on a Christ-centered world view. And I love, I love listening to their podcasts because they are out there talking about the hard issues and often coming against a lot of resistance, but they're still out there being faithful. I love that. And that's the kind of motivation we need to have in the tough spaces, representing a Christ-centered worldview, not in order to gain power and to have some kind of political majority and, and um, uh, manipulate things the way we want them, but to speak from a Christ-centered worldview for the sake of justice, for the sake of mercy. I love that. But there is a finale to this prophecy, the finale is not the return of Christ, but it is the aftermath. It is the aftermath of Christ's return. This is a picture of the true country that C.S. Lewis referred to. This is the thing that we want to be holding out for. So it says, verse 16, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Hmm. It says God will save his people. Well, he already did save them. So this is more a picture of saving them, not from something, but to something. In other words, this is the fullness of salvation being reached. This is the completion. This is the true country that we are longing for. And God is saying, don't look to this world to fulfill it. It is coming. So I loved meditating on the imagery of this passage. It encouraged me. I want to meditate on this with you. He says, he says he's going to save them as the flock of his people. And that made me think of this idea of rest. That we will finally arrive. I think of sheep wandering and looking for that place of food and water and protection. And so that is what he, when he's using that imagery of, he will say them as the flock of his people. I have this idea that of arriving home. We will finally be at home. We will finally belong. So this is to encourage us when we feel like we don't belong. Like we struggle to feel like we have a home. 
Like we struggle with feeling secure and safe. We have a destiny where God is going to bring you to complete rest, complete safety. That's not gonna happen in this world. It's going to happen when he comes. Then it says we are jewels in his land, shining in his land. I believe this is a picture of our transformation. And the Bible talks about this elsewhere that we will become fully righteous. You know, to answer my son's question, why doesn't God just remove sin? There's a burden he feels. I believe in God, but I still struggle. I still struggle with disbelief. I struggle with sin. I struggle with not loving people as I ought to. And that weighs on us. And it, we groan under our own struggles and failures. And God is saying, that will change. There will be a blink of an eye transformation. But that comes when he comes again. And we will be transformed. And we will be perfectly righteous in his kingdom. We will perfectly love, perfectly believe. That burden will be lifted. And I love thinking about that moment. And I think about that moment often when I'm struggling. Yes, I want to get better. I want to grow. I want to repent. But it makes me think of my future country. Well, I will not have that struggle anymore. And it makes me long for his coming and his kingdom. But you know, really, it's this last imagery that really got to me. It's this last imagery that I want us to really dwell on. Look at what it says. It says we're going to be like sheep. We're going to be like jewels. And then we're going to be like young people with grain and wine. We're, think about that. We're going to be like young people with an, with an abundant amount of food and alcohol. Okay, I'm not making this up. You can see it for yourself. God is saying this is party time. This is a, when God pictures the kingdom, he pictures college-age people. <laughs> like you're going to college, but it's only parties and none of the school. And God says, that's my kingdom. That's a picture of my kingdom. Right, and, and, and so he leaves us with this picture of young people. I was like, what about the old people? What about the young people? And I was like, oh, whoa. No, no, no. This is when we are forever young. This is when, you know, and when you think about this, what do we love about that age? What do we love about that college age, that young adult age? There's something about we love about it, we sing about it, we want to be forever young in our songs, we glamorize it, we dwell on it, right? It's because there's this insatiable appetite to experience life, to experience the pleasures of life, this exuberance for all that we, you can do and experience without really the cares of the world haven't quite gotten to you yet, right? There's this youthful joy and hunger to experience life. And that's a description of the kingdom. That is our destiny. And so because that's our destiny, we're gonna have a longing for that, right? We're gonna have a longing to experience that. And so um, we can struggle with things like FOMO, Right? We want to we want to do what everyone else is doing. We we can struggle with the restlessness, right? We want more and more and more. We struggle with the lust, right? We struggle with boredom. And so God is saying, I will bring you delights forevermore, as though you were a young person with unlimited amounts of food and alcohol. It captures that idea. 
Um, and so don't let the pleasures of this world destroy your soul searching for that kingdom, searching for that country. When I was in college, my roommates and I, and I have no idea why we decided to do this, we threw a fake frat party. And my, we called it Phi Theta Mu because my name is Paul, my, my roommate's name is Terrence, and then my other roommate's Mike, Phi Theta Mu. And we told our friends, and they told their friends, and they told their friends, and that night, and we put up, we like carved out letters and put it up on our house for the night. And that night, we had hundreds of people come to our house. And here's the kicker, we had no alcohol. Because it was a fake party, it was a joke. And we were laughing at everybody, they'd show up and they'd be like, what are we doing here? No alcohol. Um, of course, they didn't need alcohol because most of them came pretty plastered already. In fact, someone passed out. We still had to call the ambulance. But you know, I think that's what this world is like. I think it's the fake frat party. It doesn't have the good stuff. It doesn't have the real thing. And so God is calling us to say the real party is coming. This isn't the real party. The real time for unlimited pleasures and delights to pour yourself into isn't this world. This world is a struggle to bring the gospel. Yes, there are some delights, but don't chase after that. Don't waste your life and destroy your soul chasing after that. Because really what you're really longing for is coming. It is his kingdom. So God's people, we are to patiently hold out to experience our destiny as being the centerpiece of God's kingdom. There is a struggle we have to embrace along the way, but it's a good struggle. It's bringing his name to all the nations. And we're to stay motivated. We're to stay motivated that God is using us. And we're to hold out to experience the rest, to experience the transformation and the joy of being in his kingdom when it fully comes. Let's live for that church. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this vision. Lord, we thank you that there is more to this life that we can hold out for. The true party is coming. And Lord, that is a victory that you have given your people. It is promised to us when we believe in you, when we're united to you, your kingdom will become our kingdom. Your victory is our victory. And so in the meantime, you call us to a noble struggle. Lord, a, a struggle of love, but a struggle nonetheless, a struggle to bring the gospel. So let us do that in a way that we are faithful to your word. We don't blunt or change or reinterpret or hide from it, Lord. But we are willing to be bold and courageous with the gospel. Lord, we stay motivated knowing that you're using us, Lord. Help us as a church to live for this, to help live for our true country, to encourage one another towards that end. Lord, to, to continue to endure despite our own groaning, our own failures, our own longings, knowing they will be um, fully, uh, fully met uh, at your appearing. So come, Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.